Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside? One, two, three, four. This is the Prying Priest Podcast, and I'm Father Yuri Hladio. You're listening to the first half of an unedited interview about the personal stories of amazing people and why they have come to believe what they do. The second half of these interviews are reserved for patrons only. If you like this show, visit my website, pryingpriest.com, for more content and to learn how you can become a patron of the show. Enjoy the first half of this interview. Welcome, Daniel Rempel, to the Prying Priest Podcast. You, you're one of our first patrons. Really? Not the first. Okay. My, my mother has the honor of being <laughs> the first, the first good, patron of this show. That's a good honor for a mother to have, among yeah, other and, honors that mothers should have. And then the first thing, after I saw, I saw her, it's like, oh, like, thanks for being a patron. She goes, yeah, it's too expensive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so um, no, she's come around. She listens to all the episodes, and I actually get calls from my parents after each episode. And they're like, "This is what I thought about this episode." That's wonderful. That's the kind yeah. of feedback that you hope for, actually. I think yes, I've I've received really good feedback from my parents, both positive and negative. That's good. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, everyone likes to be buttered up a little bit, but the 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 critical feedback, like that's really what we want. Right, right. Well, Daniel, you live in Winnipeg. And maybe you could give a little bit of a rundown. Firstly, how you know me and kind of how that all started to develop. Uh, and then maybe a bit more about uh, actually kind of like your schooling and what you're studying. Just a quick rundown. Sure. And then after the, we're done that, we can go back to the beginning. Cool. Um, so where I met you was through your wife, Nikaila. Um I was actually thinking about this because I thought that you might ask this question. And uh, uh, I was thinking back to the first time I had ever heard of a Yuri fellow um, was through Nikaila when we were working together at Bible camp. Um, I think she was having kind of a, she was a little bit bummed out during the summer because there was, there was this other person who she was missing and was not there. Um, She described him as, as this ruggedly handsome, um, funny, dashing man. And it turns out it was you. Oh, okay. Um, I was getting a little <laughs> jealous there for a second. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, we we met uh, through through um, I was I was friends with, with Nikaila through camp. Uh, and um, Nikaila was good friends with the person who turned out to be my wife in, eventually. Uh, I met Nikaila first. And then I met Emily and then I developed a crush on Emily and I told Nikaila in confidence and she spilled the beans <laughs> uh, very quickly. Never and, trust my wife. That, that's, a, you know, that's the, uh, that's the it, lesson we've learned today. Yeah. That is the most important thing that I have to offer our listeners today is do not trust Nikaila. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think the first time that we ever met or hung out, if I'm remembering this correctly, um, was at Nikaila's parents' place. And I'm pretty sure it was during Lent because I remember it was one of her first Lents being with you. And um, the the extent that um, the Orthodox practice Lent was beyond anything that I had ever experienced. 
And so I, I think I remember she was she was trying to bake some special vegan cookies that uh, um, she was struggling with. Um, mm-hmm. And then anyways, we ended up, I think, hanging out and playing board games or something like that. Um, and then um, since then, um, yeah, mostly have have hung out um, in the group of the four of us uh, mm-hmm. with with Emily and Nikaila, but also um, we we hung out many times at those beerology nights that you mentioned mm-hmm. in other podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, we played in band. You recorded us. That was awesome. Yes, Queen, um, Queen's Brigade. So Ryan, a couple of episodes ago, was uh, in Queen's Brigade, and Dan, I think you were one of the founding uh, members. I was Whereas in there. Me, me, me and Ryan were not of the founding members. <laughs> yeah. We were uh, lackeys. Is that the right word? See, I I felt like I was not the most talented musician in, in the band. Uh, and so I had to prove my worth by by doing the managing um, and all that, getting us shows and that kind of stuff. Um, and otherwise, I just faded into the background on stage. I'll play guitar on the side as long as you let me book gigs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, you, you can play with us, but maybe you just stand off stage and uh, we won't plug you in. And uh, yeah. you can be. I, I, da- Dan, you you wrote one of the 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 chiastic center of that album is the song that you wrote. Um, and you, you sing the lead on and play the guitar for, and, and that was the, uh, when the, when we, when our album dropped back in, what year did it come out? 2012? I think 20, 2013, 2013, somewhere. And then I remember my manager at the time when I was working at Starbucks, she listened to it. And a couple weeks later, I was like, so how do do you like the album? She goes, that one song right in the middle. Um, uh, okay. The title is eluding me deep inside, deep inside. Like that one, like really hit me. Really, right? And I was like, "Oh, like tell me more about it." So that was her favorite song on the album. Wow. So there is somebody that you don't know <laughs> who thinks that that is the best song on the album. Wow, that um, I didn't actually know that. That that makes me feel good. The mm-hmm. one song that I've ever good song that I've ever written. Yeah, and um, uh, <laughs> and um, sorry about that song. It has the most <laughs> glorious harmonica solo at the end. Yeah, and uh, that was true. a. That was a one take wonder by Joel Jolly. Yeah, that was not me. That was definitely Joel. Maybe maybe I'll play it here so people sure. can hear. But by the time, you know, I get through all of the Queens of Brigade members on this podcast, <laughs> we'll have heard the whole album. The thing is, you could interview each one of them and they would they would all bring you a really different and interesting perspective. Mm-hmm. It's some really we had some really wonderful people in that band. Mm-hmm. Um, who are who are still doing really cool things. So yeah well let's play uh, that harmonica solo uh, with the ending of the song here so uh, we'll check back in a minute
Well, that's a good song. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's just move on to the next uh, the next bit here. Yeah. Which is, uh, yeah, I guess, did you have more to say about uh, your connection with me and everything like that? Or do you want to move more to uh, what you've been doing in school and studies? Um, I mean, I'll, I'll uh, we'll say maybe more about our, our connection is, is similar to a lot of the non-Orthodox guests that you've had on the podcast so far is really, um, for me, you were the gateway into any engagement with orthodoxy. Um, I probably knew that orthodoxy existed in some form before I met you, but maybe not. I'm not actually sure, but I know that I don't have any other friends who, who, or at least no, no one who's as close to me uh, as you are that, that practices orthodoxy and anyone who I would know I met through you. Um, so that, that's been, um, I feel, uh, a good opportunity for ecumenism and, in, and engagement with, with someone from a, a different, uh, theological background from my own. Um, and I've always really appreciated learning from you in that way. Um, yeah, that's, um, as far as you had asked, also asked about my schooling and where I'm at now. So I am about a year and a half into a PhD in theological ethics uh, at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. I'm living in Winnipeg, but the university is in, in Scotland, um, working on disability theology, um, particularly using the work of one theologian uh, by the name of Karl Barth, who I like, um, and applying that to uh, Christian lives of people with intellectual disabilities would be a very quick introduction to my schooling. Cool. Yeah, I definitely want to talk more about uh, your thesis and your work in the Patreon episode, because sure. I think it'll probably get a little technical and everything like that. Yeah. So. The Patreon audience tends to be a bit more attuned with things like that. But um, maybe let's go back to the beginning. So obviously now you are involved in sort of the Christian world. You are doing degrees in theology. You've done degrees in theology. But did you always, was, was being involved in church and the whole Christian thing something that was attractive to you right from the beginning? Um, I don't know if I would say attractive but it was always something that we did and always something that was important. And I don't offer that caveat as like, Oh, I just did it because I had to, it was more of a, an, I did it because I had to, like, it was just what we did. I didn't, I didn't know anything different. My parents have always and continue to be uh, very involved in our church from as long as I can remember we always went to church on Sunday. There was no, oh, let's just take this Sunday off. Like we, we were always there and and I was involved in in Sunday school, just like I attended Sunday school every Sunday and, and then youth group. And one of the earliest things that I that I did in our church, it was a pretty small church growing up, um, was I, I started learning how to play acoustic guitar in the fall of grade six and by Christmas time I was playing on a worship team and from that point I've off and on been involved in the life of the church and so I don't know if it's always been attractive but it's always been kind of assumed 
Um, yeah. Mm, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess you, you mentioned that your uh, parents were every Sunday kind of people and that this was the world you were swimming in. And you grew up in a Mennonite church in Niverville. Do I have that right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So Niverville being a small town south of, of Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What about siblings? Did siblings, uh, did, did anybody ever rebel against church stuff? Not really. I don't know. That must say something really good about my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Um, but no, we, there's three of us. I have, I have a younger sister and a younger brother. Um, both of them have been involved in, in church in various ways. Um, both are, are currently still at, at that same church in Niverville as youth leaders. My, uh, my sister helps uh, in other ways uh, on Sunday morning um, with, with uh, audiovisual stuff. Um, yeah, I, I mean, if either of them ever had any rebellious phase, which I don't think that they did, like they, they hid it from everyone. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we, everyone just kind of assumed that that church was important. And because it's important, you, you get involved. Okay, I have I have an interesting question. When you were when you were fifteen, how would you have responded to the question of why are you a Christian? That's a good question because I feel like around it's around that time where I started to kind of take the Christian faith more seriously on my own. Um as something that could be experienced more than just performed, I guess, or acculturated. So I would say around the age of 15, I would, I probably would have understood faith to be primarily eschatological. You, you participate and practice this so that you can go to heaven when you die. Right. Eschatological um, being a word that means like the theology about what happens at the end. Yeah, exactly. So I, I had a very, this is something that, that matters after you die. Um, it, it's, it's your eternal fate. Mm-hmm. Um, but also was starting to, to realize that, that there is some sort of positive um, emotion response feeling that you can get when you engage in Christian practices like like reading scripture, prayer, um, going to church. At, at that age, those were probably the only ways that I I knew that you could practice the Christian faith, um, but. But I think at that point I was starting to realize that that there there was something positive that could happen that could happen to me when I engaged in those things. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had any? Did you ever have a a seminal moment of transition, or maybe a, a moment of? a spiritual experience or a divine revelation or grand images of the glorious heaven. No. Uh, but have you ever had any, um, any spiritual experiences slash seminal moments 
in your young Christian life? Yeah. Um, I have, I, I did have a couple, especially in kind of the late teen or early adolescent years. The first one being, um, I was at a, I, I attended a Christian hockey camp, um, put on by hockey ministries international in Winnipeg. I think it was the summer after I was in grade nine going into grade 10. And I, I had always, or for a while I had grown up going to various Bible camps and um, I had wanted to try out this hockey camp. I I loved playing hockey growing up. And, uh, and so my parents uh, allowed me to go to this camp and I remember quite clearly, actually, um, on the camp ran Sunday night to Friday evening. And on the Thursday evening, they had uh, what they called a worship night, which pretty much just meant that that there was a band there that, that played praise and worship music and um, just kind of went on for maybe about an hour or so I don't actually remember the time frame, but uh, at that at that time in my life, um, I had I had very much like a, I guess what you would assume a stereotypical hockey player mindset would have about themselves. You got to present yourselves as tough, and nothing can phase you, and you don't show emotion, and and so I remember all throughout this week I was wasn't really interested in any of the the spiritual aspects of the camp as much as I was playing hockey. And I heard that there was going to be some, some NHL players there and whatever. So I didn't go in to this. They had this worship night on Thursday evening. I didn't go in with a sense of, Oh wow, I'm ready to receive from God at this time as, as some people did. But, um, I remember this worship night kicking off and I was standing kind of near the back of the chapel with another friend, not really singing along, not really engaging. And um, maybe about halfway uh, through the the evening, these, I don't know who started it, but, but these teenage guys, these, tough hockey players started going up to the front of the chapel and just like kneeling in prayer. And I was like, well, that's, that's kind of weird. Why are they doing that? Um, and I was, I think maybe by that point I was singing along a little bit, but I wasn't thinking too much. And then one of the, one of the guys, um, who I had clicked with that week, he was, he was a year older than me, probably one of the more like cool guys at, at camp. He came he left from the front of the chapel and came to the back and said, Hey, come on. And he like brought me to the front with him. And I, and I kneeled and I didn't really, I don't know if I really knew what I was doing, but I felt in that moment, just overcome with a a wave of emotion. Um, I don't really know how to describe it, but I, but I started weeping and this was totally foreign to me. I had, I had never experienced anything like this. Like I said, I, I presented myself as a like a tough guy, even though I wasn't. I was a wussy. Um, I, I presented myself as a tough guy who who wasn't phased by 
these emotions didn't present emotions and I just started weeping. And I, that, that experience has happened to me a few in a few other places um, at a few different times in my life. It's not a regular thing, but that moment at that hockey camp was the, the first time I'd ever experienced anything like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the, the idea of having a hockey camp is something that Orthodox listeners would have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Um, but as far as I, I understand what a hockey camp is, is a week long retreat where you learn how to play hockey, but you also do Christian things like Bible studies and stuff. Yeah, exactly. So we, we had, um, twice a day where we, we went to an arena and, and we, yeah, had different drills and practices and, and learned different skills of the game. And then, yeah, throughout the rest of the day, there were, there was different Bible studies. There was chapels, um, other, um, fun and games, um, all kind of presented in a way of, uh, reach, reaching hockey players with the gospel. I think mm-hmm. it was kind of the, the idea of the people who were running it. There's a common criticism that exists in our culture that, you should uh, that you shouldn't raise your kids with any kind of religion because if you're going to do that, you're going to indoctrinate your kids. So I guess Daniel, are are you an indoctrinated um, <laughs> adult now? Were you ad- indoctrinated as a young person? I don't know. Um, I mean, we all are going to raise our kids if we have kids with some sort of belief system. And I have had conversations with, with particularly people who who were raised in Christian homes who, who would probably say that they were indoctrinated, and and maybe you could say that they were. I think that where my where my parents, and and uh, it's not just my parents; it's it's my church as well, and, and the other leaders that I had in my life, where where they maybe succeeded, where other people have failed is that they they presented the Christian faith as something to take quite seriously, but didn't beat you over the head with it and um, allowed for, for questions to be asked and, and were okay if they didn't have the answers without just also presenting a, a mindset of anything goes. So they, they taught me certain things that were important to believe and perhaps like non-negotiables of the faith, but I never felt restricted by that. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that I was indoctrinated, but I, I, I understand where, where the concern comes from. Um, because I have seen the the ways in which some people were raised in in religious traditions did end up being harmful. I just I don't think that was my own experience in mm-hmm. any way, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The um, well, yeah. So maybe move on from there. Then, so you became interested in actually pursuing topics of theology in an academic setting. Mm-hmm. Was was that your first 
was that right from the beginning? No, no, it was not. <laughs> um, I, I think f- my, my parents always instilled, uh, an, imp- the importance of, of reading the Bible and, and studying scripture from a young age, like they really, really encouraged us to, to read our Bibles. And, um, it started off very flippant at times. I remember sometimes um, my parents would be be downstairs watching TV, and my bedroom was kind of just right around the corner. And I would I would uh, be watching TV with them before bed, and they're like, "Oh, shouldn't you probably read your Bible before you go to bed?" I was like, "Yep." And so I waited until the commercial break, and then quickly would zip through a chapter. It's like, "Okay, I read the Bible today," and then I'd go back to watching TV with them. Um, so even though it it's it didn't start with a, a deep serious engagement i was at least shown that this is something that that a christian should do um is take the bible seriously and so that led into my parents encouraging me to do some sort of bible school or or christian college after i graduated from high school so i ended up going to Briarcrest College in Karenport, Saskatchewan. I went there for a year and I found at, or I thought at that point I was just going to kind of go for a year and then I was going to go to the University of Manitoba. And I had tossed around various thoughts. I was interested in physiotherapy. At one point I got overly ambitious and thought maybe medicine would be something I could do. Um, and, but by the end of that year at Briarcrest, um, I found that the courses that I was enjoying the most were my Bible classes. So I take, took a course on the Gospels. I took a course on the Introduction to the Old Testament. I took a course on on hermeneutics, which is just uh, a big term for um, kind of learning how to interpret the Bible. So I found that the courses that I was I was being drawn into the most were these Bible courses. And I didn't quite know what I wanted to do uh, occupationally. And so I decided that I would just continue with uh, pursuing a Bachelor of Arts in Biblical Studies. And so I did, I did leave Briarcrest after one year. That was the only part of my plan that I stuck to. And I, I transferred to Providence University College because it was just right down the road from where I grew up in Niverville. And I, I enrolled in, in Bachelor of Arts in Biblical Studies and struggled early on in my degree. I, I've always been been open to, to sharing that with, with freshmen or sophomores who, who struggle in university. It's like, I, I struggled too. Um, but I remember kind of a, a turning point in in my degree where was in uh, my I guess the winter semester of my second year so that would be my, my I guess my fourth semester of college I, I wrote a paper for a course on I think it was I think it was just like the Pauline epistles was the course and I wrote a paper on on first Corinthians 1 and I, I worked really, really hard on that paper. And I, I was really interested in, in the material and, and what it had to say. And 
I got an A on that paper for the first time in my my college career. I got an A on a paper, and at that point, I I had it kind of had a bit of a mindset shift where it's like, oh, maybe this is something that I can actually do and I can actually do well in. And so um, from there, I kind of set my standards a little bit higher of, of kind of what I expected of myself. But even at that point, I I wouldn't say that I really generated a ton of interest in in furthering my my academic study. I think that was just kind of something that from that point then, um, as I began to take myself and my abilities more seriously, that my professors began to take note as well and uh, actually had a lot of encouragement from uh, a couple of of my Bible professors there that that maybe I should go on and uh, pursue a, a master's degree and and even start thinking about perhaps a PhD as well. So no academics wasn't an interest of mine from the start, but it's something that kind of grew out of a love for studying scripture. You've been married for a handful of years now. A handful. Can you talk a bit about the effect that, you know, the process of getting married and then being married, what effect has that had on your own spiritual journey? Ooh, that's a deep question. Don't worry, Emily is not listening to this There's podcast. not a chance that she's going to listen to this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I love you, Emily, in case you are going to listen. Um no, that's a, that's a good question because it's not something that I've really reflected too much upon. I don't know what that says about me, that it's not something that I've reflected too much upon. But I think that um, marriage kind of, sh- I mean, like a lot of things that you anticipate, you have expectations of what it's going to look like. And sometimes those are correct and sometimes they are not. And so marriage kind of fulfills some expectations and shatters others. And so I think what marriage can teach you is like, how do you respond when your expectation, expectations are shattered in, in good ways or, or bad ways? Um, I think I had an idea of, oh yeah, well in, in marriage, you, you just love each other so deeply. And that love, it wasn't even like a, a, I didn't have an idea of a romantic love, but like, you know, like that, that agape love, like that deep giving of yourself and you just do this over and over again. And and it's just great. And that's what it is. But that deep giving of yourself is hard. Um, And it's not something that, okay, well, I I did it today. Now I I don't have to do it tomorrow or it gets easier to do it tomorrow. It's like, um, it's something that you have to continually train yourself in. And I think if, if perhaps marriage could teach me anything about spirituality or the Christian faith or something like that, it would be just that, um, relationships require vulnerability 
and can be messy, but it's also in that vulnerability that we find the goodness and that we find those things that are life-giving. And I, and I think that's a, that would be the same of, of our Christian faith. It's, it's when we be become vulnerable in our, in our faith, um, vulnerable to, um, God and the acts of the spirit that, um, that we can receive. Um, yeah, that's something that I'll probably need to give more thought to, to give a more in-depth answer, but that would be probably a first thought. Great. Yeah. Uh, next time we have you on, we'll have a, uh, thorough, a thorough <laughs> exploration. I had um, one professor at Providence who said that he never spoke about marriage, even though he was happily married for years and years. He, he said, if I ever get asked to speak uh, on the topic of, of marriage, I always shut it down because I, <laughs> I know I'm not going to live up to their expectations. <laughs> so interesting. Yeah. Have that ringing in my not mind. Not saying right? something about marriage is saying something about marriage. Yeah. You know? yeah. Okay. Uh, here's a, here's a fun question that I like to ask, which is what is one aspect of what you believe or how you believe or how you practice your Christian faith that you could do without? One aspect of my faith that I could do without, um, and it could be either in the context of maybe an intellectual assent to a particular belief. Right. Or it could also be a particular practices that you're currently uh, doing, uh, whether it's in your, in your own personal spiritual struggles or whether it is in the context of a worshiping community. Yeah. Um, I Without could... getting you in too much trouble. <laughs> I, I would, I would love to, to do away with a belief in hell. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. know if I, I don't know if I can. I, I don't know where I stand on that. Um, I would love to do away with. What would I love to do away with? For those who can't see Daniel, he's looking off into the distance right now in a deep, pensive uh, <laughs> look. Like this is like this is the Queen's Brigade second album cover right here. <laughs> Oh man, this is hard. Um, I don't know. I I feel like there in some ways is not a lot that I hold on to so dearly. So it's like, it could be something like trivial. I could honestly just from where I am right now, um, I could probably do away with, um, with listening to preachers. And and I don't say that as a knock on preachers either. I just think in the context of a worship service, (laughs) my, my view on preaching is that it's the most important theologizing that we can do, but the probably the least important part of the worship service. Um, so I could I could maybe do away with that, but that's probably just says more about about the way that I view the rest of the church service. Um, as far as as beliefs go, though, uh, I don't know. I feel like I've been 
this this last year of my study ha has kind of led me to already discard some things that I had previously held dear. And so we're kind of where I'm at at this moment. I feel like I've already discarded some of those things. Do you mind sharing any of those or do you want to keep those uh, on the um, DL for now? Sure. No. Um, I mean, one one thing that I'm kind of wrestling with right now, and I think I've mostly discarded, but is like the uh, the idea that um, certain certain practices are good and true just in and of themselves. Like the idea of virtue ethics that just because you just because you do this thing means that you are, in, are inherently doing a good a good and true thing. Um, I just think in a view like that, it's really easy to discard the spirit or discard Jesus or discard the working of God in the world. I, I think I, I want to at least believe in an idea of God that where God is the one who, who empowers our, our actions and our good practices that, and that is what makes them good. So any any sense of goodness beyond that that doesn't take into consideration the person of god acting in the world i would want to discard mm -hmm. okay let's change gears here a bit sure when i use the phrase an uncomfortable religious experience what is one memory that comes to mind when i use the <laughs> phrase an uncomfortable religious experience um the first thing that that came to my mind was um, where back in, in my my church in Niverville, we did these these services for a couple years in a row where um, they it was a, a seniors service, I guess. Um, there were the church. Um, I think in the years prior to that, had kind of gone through a lot of changes maybe discarded some aspects of tradition that some elderly people in, in the community either were saddened by or angered by or um, whatever, you know, like it's a big one that happened in a lot of Protestant churches and I think some Catholic churches as well, but like discarding hymns for praise and worship music and bringing drums into church, that kind of stuff. And so my, my church recognizing these, these uh, sacrifices of preference, I guess is what they were that these seniors were making for what they thought were the, the good of the community and an ability to maybe reach younger Christians um, in, in recognition of that, they, they would dedicate a service a year to the seniors and they could choose the pretty much how we would structure the service and we would sing hymns um, and maybe do things. There was a one year there was a choir because our Mennonite churches used to always have choirs. Um, it, it was really great services. Those services in and of themselves were not the uncomfortable experience, but I remember one year the person who they got to preach, I I don't know who this guy was. I don't know where they found him. He had some connection to some people in the congregation, I suppose. But he started um, ranting about the Jews in a very... He, he was using certain stereotypes um, in the middle of his sermon. 
uh, to speak negatively of of Jewish people. And I just, and lot, pretty much the whole church started squirming and we felt very uncomfortable. And I don't remember if somebody cut him off or if they, they let him finish or whatever, but there was, there was a general feeling from everyone in the, in the congregation that we were quite uncomfortable. Um, Pretty much because the guy was being racist <laughs> in his preaching. Yeah, um, yeah, that'll that'll do it. Yeah. So that's the that's the that was the first thing that came to mind when you said uncomfortable spiritual experience. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's it's this is one thing. My Orthodox world has actually been relatively small. Mm-hmm. So the, the the listeners who don't really know my my own journey because I don't actually talk about it too much on the podcast, little bits here and there. If you listen to every episode, you actually get a, a little bit of a good picture. But um, I was—I grew up in a in a very large Ukrainian church, but that was till I was about fifteen, and didn't know the inner workings or anything like that. And then every church that I've been involved with after that has been like less than fifty people being involved, right? Mm-hmm. And to so the smallest one being like thirteen people, and me being one of them, right? Um, so when it comes to organizing services and having maybe speakers that come and aren't what you know what we expected or anything like that i never really experienced situations like that until i actually started working at yfc youth for christ Mm -hmm. in winnipeg and they would we would have a a meeting once a month or so where they bring in a speaker to kind of do a bit of inspiration some spiritual uh, topics or whatever and this one man came in and was just going all over the place about everything. I ended up walking out of the meeting. Um, I had the benefit, though, of being that weird Orthodox guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm like, ah, this is all stupid. And I leave the room and people are like, ah, okay, he's Orthodox. But uh, no, they, they had to actually, they um, one of the leaders issued a uh, uh, YFC-wide apology. <laughs> well, it's, the, it's interesting in some like more, I guess, evangelical Protestant churches Whereas there's such a high view of what the sermon is supposed to do, but also like anybody can do it. It's kind of the, the attitude. Um, So most of the time, what, if there's a poor result, it's just like, Oh, well that didn't make any sense. Or like, yeah, they said, um, too many times or, or whatever, things like that. But on a, on occasion you can get, um, just very uh, inappropriate things said from the pulpit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've only been in one Orthodox setting where somebody, it wasn't in a church service, so it wasn't a sermon, but it was like a retreat where somebody was speaking where they were, um, they were, it was an Orthodox person and was teaching things that I was, um, ang- I was getting very angry at. And mm. the only way you could ask questions was by writing them down. And I'm like furiously scribbling <laughs> down a bunch of questions and everything. Um, I'm actually going to save that story for the patrons. So if you want nice. to hear that story, then you can, uh, you can hear about when I got mad at a conference, but um, yeah, to, to take us to the end here, I guess without getting too much into disability theology, which we will absolutely get into disability theology, what do you think the role of the intellect is, let's say for you personally, in your Daniels, your Christian faith and your your pursuit of, of truth? Yeah. Um, 
my I think that the intellect is is quite important for my academic study. Um, I think it's really important for what I think perhaps could be a gift that I have been given. If you want to go into Pauline language, I suppose, of spiritual giftings, is that there are, are some who are called to to teach and to preach. And I hope that that is what I have been called to considering the journey that I'm, that I'm going on to um, where, the, where I would be much, l- I would view it much less important for the rest of my Christian life. Um, I think that, um, that there is an experiential aspect to the Christian faith that goes beyond simply the intellect um, the intellect might only be one of, of many categories by which we can experience God or participate in the Christian faith itself. So I think in in my work, um, in my academic work as a theologian, if you want to call me that, then I, the intellect is quite important as I, I wrestle with with arguments and what people have said or are saying or what I want to say then that it's important that I that I understand what has been said and that I I state what I want to say in a way that can be understood by others. But as far as the intellect for my own Christian faith, um, there is a place for it. I'm, I don't want to become fully anti-intellectual, but I don't think that it's necessarily the most important thing. You've just finished listening to the first half of this interview. Find out how to access the second half by visiting my website, pryingpriest.com. We'll see you next time. Say, why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside?